This is a kick in the grass with Dan Riccio and Jeff Blair on the Sportsnet Radio Network. A kick in the grass, Dan Riccio and Jeff Blair back with you as the Premier League season is in the books and all the Canadian teams are out at MLS is (laughs) back. Uh, we'll be uh, checking in with Jason DeVos on the future of Canadian development and how it is going during the pandemic. Uh, but uh, focusing in on the Premier League as it is all well and good, Jeff. As uh, I mean, I can't believe it. It feels like just yesterday that things just got started up and going again. And here we are. The season is is in the books. Yeah, and and it uh, you know it came down to the to the final day for uh, for Champions League places and for relegation, just as you just as you like you know like it to would have liked it to have done, just as you kind of drew it up. And and the big thing for me, Danny, and especially given what we're hearing now in in North American Major League Baseball, is the fact that you know as as Henry Winter reported today, uh, the Premier League was able to get through this season. And in the last round of testing report, no positive COVID-19 tests. Now, think about this. This is and where I think this is amazing is, first of all, the UK, uh, the UK is in that group of countries that would be just behind the United States in terms of having mishandled COVID-19. Like it doesn't it shouldn't surprise anybody that the Bundesliga guys would be able to get their season done without a positive test. But think about what a mess the UK was, even when the Premier League started up, these guys weren't in a bubble. They were allowed to go home. You know, they were allowed to be out and about in the community. And for the league to be able to pull off this type of a season after the restart without any issue as a result of positive COVID nineteen tests is to me, to me that's remarkable. Because I thought I thought we would I thought there would at least be a blip. You know, especially since early. Very early in the process, we saw Mikel Arteta come down with it. And especially since there was a lot of discontent in the UK about the Premier League even starting up again. So by and large, I I would think that the powers that be have to be sitting back today and thinking, my goodness, that went just about as well as as we could have planned it. Yeah. And I I mean, I I don't think they could have imagined it going any better than than it did when we when we started this all. Um, we all expected some some bumps along the road, mm-hmm. and we didn't have uh, pretty much any of that. And, and the focus was really on the game. And at first, uh, you know, there was some um, dodgy moments, especially defending wise. But the product on the field got back to uh, the level that we expected to be at eventually. And you have those big moments. You had it go down right to the the wire for Champions League places and for relegation spots. That was huge for for the Premier League, and you now it's good for the Premier League too that uh, the top four is you know four of the biggest teams um, mm-hmm. with Manchester United and and Chelsea. I all, all due respect to to Leicester, but I imagine um, you know the Premier League just feels stronger when their their top four teams or their big money teams are the ones that that are locking in those Champions League places. Yeah, and what I what I think will be especially pleasing to a lot of uh, a lot of fans and to a lot of Premier League executives is that both Man United and Chelsea, they they didn't back in to the Champions League. They both had to win matches. Uh, you know, we saw a lot Manchester United. My goodness, when you compare where they are now 
to where they were earlier in the year. Poof. Bruno Fernandez has been a revelation. David De Gea is still a mess in goal, but they did manage a run of clean sheets. It is, it's almost a completely different team. And I'll tell you what, I think Chelsea under Frank Lampard has really laid down the foundation for a terrific year next year. I know a lot of people are going to focus on Man United because they're expected to be active in the transfer market. But I like the fact that Chelsea's got out early ahead of other teams. I like the type of players that they're focusing on. I think Chelsea is going to be primed next year to really take a run at the second spot. I don't know if they'll be able to knock off Liverpool or Man City. I fully expect one of those two teams to be to be at the top again. But I, I would put them right now, Danny, as the third best team, frankly, in, in the Premier League. Yeah, with some of the moves that they've made, they are really interesting. So uh, let's... Let's do this. Let's uh, quickly go through uh, some of these top teams and, and give our, our quick thoughts on them, the season that was, and as they look ahead. Let's start with the champs in Liverpool. And they finish, uh, after the restart, they have 17 points. Of course, they fall short of the points record, um, which they were chasing with Manchester City. Uh, Liverpool, how they finished and how they look ahead. Oh, I'm... You know, I mean, it seems so anticlimactic. I, I don't know, yeah. you know, the, the the fact that they only managed 99 points. <laughs> yeah. Right? You know, their their goal difference was, was 52. I mean, never mind the fact that they were able to, you know, win this thing early with, man, you know, with, with a very, with the defending champions, Man City behind them. I, to me, one of the more amazing stats is the fact that the third best team in the league Manchester United is actually closer to Bournemouth in terms of points than they are to Liverpool. So that shows you just how big a, a, a gap that is. I mean, they've got everything. Uh, Trent Alexander-Arnold has become, I, I think, one of the five best players in the Premier League. I think he's the best young player in the Premier League. What is going to interest me is they haven't had a lot to play for since the restart. They're out of Champions League. Mm. This was their sole focus. And I wonder, Danny, if Jurgen Klopp isn't looking at what Man City went through this year and isn't thinking, I have just about every position on this team covered for next year, but I might need to freshen it up a bit. I, it, it seems to me that one of the things Man City did wrong this year is they put too much confidence and too much faith in players from last year. And I don't think Jurgen Klopp wants to do that. That's why I think it's hugely important to get a guy like Thiago in there just to change the mix a bit, even though they've got, as I said, great talent at every position, change the mix against, put a different voice in there. I think you're going to see Jurgen Klopp be very surgical when it comes to doing this. And then I fully expect that after next season, you're going to see Liverpool really look at making substantial changes. You're right. They have to bring in some new blood just to to guard against complacency, really, to, to have players fighting for spots within the team. We can't ignore last year either. Like This team were champions of Europe a year ago. They're mm -hmm. Premier League champions this year. Complacency inevitably comes into the mindset, and, and – now, I'm not saying Liverpool is going to drop off like a like a brick. Uh, they're too good for that. But as we saw with Manchester City this year, it's it can be very can be a very fine line as to how um, 
the difference between winning a ton of matches and not. You know, they scored a ton of goals this year. Their defense wasn't, you know, at, now they gave up 35 goals. Liverpool gave up 33. So it's not like they were that far off the pace. It's um, certain matches they were not clinical enough. They had defensive miscues. They switched off, and that really was the dagger. But as we look, after the restart, Liverpool just 17 points. Man City led the table with 24. So the gap is going to be much closer next year, and I think Liverpool definitely have to bring in some new blood uh, to guard against that. Manchester City. Mm. Um, parting shot on David Silva. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to miss him in the Prem. Oh, I am too. I, he's a wonderful player. I mean, he was class to me in a lot of ways. He reflects the very best aspects of Man City under Pep Guardiola. And um, it just, you know, a model, a model pro and a guy who people, you need to look back at Man City's early days with Pep Guardiola and just how significant a player, how, how much he was relied on uh, almost from the get-go. He was a guy that, that Pep Guardiola, I think, really used as a bit of a foil, as you know, a guy that he could, he could lean on, a guy he could maybe prod a bit. I just think he was a wonderful player. Um, and, and to me, he, you know, and, and to a certain degree, Vincent Company are going to be the kind of the faces of that, of that those, those great Man City teams. But what I really find fascinating is I think you can take Man City, Chelsea, Man United, Arsenal, and you know what? They're all looking for the same thing, Danny. They're all looking for help at the back. They're all looking for the type of defensive spine that Liverpool has. And that, to me, is the big separator between Liverpool and everything else. Regardless of what Liverpool does, they can come back with the same setup at the back next season, and they will be the best in the Premier League in that area. It, it, it's, it is going to be fascinating to see how those teams, Man City, Manchester United, Chelsea, Arsenal, you can throw them in there how they address their defensive issues, because they're all essentially chasing the same type of player. Yeah, we know uh, Khalidu Koulibaly is uh, probably top of the list. He's been already linked to Man City. Um, he's been linked to Liverpool as well. Um, it, it's going to be expensive. He's into his late 20s. You know, I think uh, a lot of these these teams are all looking for the next Virgil van Dijk. Uh, I don't mm -hmm. know if you're going to find him quite quite that easily, uh, but uh, they're 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 all going to be trying. Um, Man City, they need help at the back for sure. They've also got to just freshen up the squad. They're kind of getting a little bit long in the tooth. Um, Aguero's uh, towards the the twilight of his career. You have Silva moving on, um, so they they've got to be better, but. Again, we talked about this last week and the the huge win of being back in the Champions League and having that that decision overturned. You could tell Pep Guardiola's hungry, and I think Man City's going to be all in on, on yeah. improving the squad and, and chasing down Liverpool next year. And I think it's going to be a fascinating title race in the same way that it was uh, a year ago. Um, Manchester United, they finished third. <laughs> Bruno Fernandes, uh, 15 goals and assists in... The Portuguese league this year, 15 goals and assists in the Premier League this year uh, after the January transfer. I can't. I don't think there's too many players that have done that in top leagues over the course of one season. But um, as as much as anything else, he's the he's the guy that um, that really put it together for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer and and 
brought hope back to back to Old Trafford. You know, uh, Man U and, and, and Charlton have been my teams all along, and I've, I've followed them since I started really watching soccer. And, and the only – I'm with those people who say the only United player I can think of who is comparable in terms of having an immediate impact on the team and just changing the tone around the team was Eric Cantona. I, that's the only guy that comes to mind. I mean, Man, Man, Manchester United at times looked abject in the first half of the season. Mm-hmm. Not only did Bruno Fernandes give them a little bit of a brain offensively, but he also, his arrival also coincides with the, the steadying of Manchester United at the back. I, I think he's, he's a, he, he brings this team something they haven't had for years. And now when I look at him, I look at Pogba, Greenwood, Rashford, Martial, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going back to the days of gigs and those guys to come up with a, with the front line that matches up to that. My only concern right now with Manchester United is I don't want them to go out and screw this up. I'm terrified they're going to go out and blow the doors off to get Jaden Sancho. I would rather they focus defensively I would rather they sit down and come to a decision on David De Gea if Paul Pogba is happy if they can get a read on where his head is then I think if you're united you stick with this 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 front group that you have right now and you and you add at the end and I I, look I was one of those guys those Manchester United fans that was really questioning Ole uh, as, as, you know, as the season went on, but I have to give him credit. Mason Greenwood is a handful. Anthony Martial looks happy again. Marcus Rashford has become one of the best young European players uh, around. And as I said, Paul Pogba, I think, has kind of started to find a way that he can fit in to that that lineup but uh I'm, again i'm not as i'm not as bullish on them next season as i am in chelsea i just think chelsea i i think chelsea is is really going to be the team next year that that just turns the premier league in its head yeah i uh you know i look at at greenwood rashford and martial and and martial and and what they were all able to provide they they outscored that front three uh, scored more goals this year than than Liverpool's front three, which is kind of crazy to think. So I'm with you on the on the Sancho front. We're hearing reports that they they're already going all in with with a 98 million euro bid that came out of of build in Germany today, and it's been rejected. Uh, but with the way Greenwood has played, um, I, I think I think they need to focus their their resources elsewhere potentially, and that being center back. Mm-hmm. For me, like McGuire's fine. You've got to find somebody that's pacey, though, because he's just not he's not that guy. He's got to be you got to find somebody that can guard against the pacey striker that will get him behind and beat the offside trap or whatever it may be. Uh, They need some pace back there in the central role alongside Harry Maguire as they continue to build. And they really need somebody to replace uh, in in the in the base of the midfields because Matic uh, just not not quite good enough for me. all right, so let's get to Chelsea. They've already got Timo Werner. They've already got Hakim Zayek. They are maybe on the inside track for Kai Havertz. They've got their Champions League place locked down. Um, this team is, if they can figure out what they are defensively, 
they might be the most exciting team to watch next year as far as what they can do to contend against Man City and Liverpool. Yeah, I don't think there's any doubt about that. Look, the I mean, Frank Lampard, I think a lot of people viewed Frank Lampard as someone that they weren't willing to give credit to for the, for the, for the work he did. I mean, a lot of people viewed him as a guy who was going to get the benefit of the doubt from the media because he's an England legend, he's a Chelsea legend. But look, he is showing us a great deal this year. He is showing us that he is a top flight manager. And what he did uh, on Sunday in benching Kepa and going with Willy Caballero and in, in that match and having it pay off to him, it was not only ballsy, but I think that sends a message. That sends a message to the team as whole as a whole as you get ready to move on. And I do think they need to address the keeper situation. And I'm not certain Kep is the guy, but look, if 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 they can get if they can get Havertz to go along with Werner and Zayek, you know, you you'd have to you almost have to shrug and say, okay, what more can you expect? The, what more can you expect the guy to do in the transfer market? You know, maybe you go for a veteran keeper. I, I don't know. Maybe you try to get somebody come in in a short term deal that you can that you can build around. I could maybe see something like that happening, but uh, I'm with you. I think they are going to be a handful next year. And, and the most important thing is they're going to be fun to watch. No, I shouldn't say the most important thing. Everybody wants to win, <laughs> but they will be fun to watch. Uh, Christian Pulisic, um, you're pretty, if you're Chelsea, you're pretty happy with what he gave you in, in year one and what the future may be with that player as well. They're building around really young talent. You know, Zayek is, is the oldest at, uh, what, 27 uh, mm-hmm. coming in. Uh, they're looking at Chilwell as well. Uh, that would really help uh, their their defense. And, and the left back position is sore spot for a lot of teams, as we've seen. Um, there's, there's question marks there. And the biggest question mark, I think, for Lampard next year with all these incoming players, you know, you, you came in and everything was gravy this year. There were not much expectations for Lampard and Chelsea this season. Uh, he overachieved, got them the Champions League place, but now they're going to push forward and give him resources to build around this squad now. And that's, you know, as we know, when, when the expectations get raised, that's when more questions come into play. Um Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang um, and Arsenal could be looking at a new deal, but how long until Arsenal, if ever, do they get back into being title contenders? Uh, I'm, I mean, I, uh, you know, I'm a big Mikel Arteta fan, um, and I think he's the right guy for that job. But I, I, look at, I look at all those teams we've talked about, and let's keep in mind that Arsenal, you know, we intend to lump Arsenal in with that group, but the fact is Wolves, Spurs, and Leicester are, are, are kind of there with them. So, I mean, I don't, I'm not quite prepared yet to put Arsenal back in that big four, that big five. I, I just think they're a couple of years away from getting to the point where we can expect them to be a permanent fixture in the Champions League. And I'm hoping they have the patience with Mikel Arteta. I think they will. I hope Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang stays at Arsenal, I think if they can get some stuff straightened out, if they can move some players out, if they can finally get rid of Mesut Ozil, I know there's a lot of ifs here. I think if they can clear out Lacazette and just and, and free Pierre Emerick Aubameyang to be the only focus of their attack, I think they'll be okay. But boy, they still have a long, long way to go to to match up with uh, 
while Liverpool and Man City are in a completely different plateau, but even an improving Chelsea and an improving Manchester United, uh, that's a pretty heavy task for, for Mikel Arteta right now. But I do think, I do think they're going in the right direction. Arsenal had uh, 16 points in the return to play. That was uh, seventh best in the uh, return to play table. Uh, Tottenham were fourth. They had 18 points. And uh, I don't know, did they figure things out under Jose Mourinho there after winning the North London Derby? Uh. <laughs> I think your response said it all. The hesitation said it all. The sigh said it all on uh, on what we think of Tottenham moving forward. Look, I just wonder... I wonder how they hang on to Harry Kane or more to the point, I guess. I wonder how Harry Kane hangs on to Spurs. There's nothing to suggest at this point. There's nothing to suggest at this point that they are anywhere near Liverpool, Man City, or I would argue Chelsea or Manchester United. I think there's a real drop off between those four teams and the rest of the pack. And I just don't... It, the fit doesn't seem right, and as I said, you know Harry Kane is you know, Harry Kane's not getting younger, and he's getting to the point where he's going to want to start collecting trophies and kind of burnishing his reputation. I just don't see him being happy playing for Jose Mourinho. So I I got to tell you this I I think right now he is the first manager. Of that big group of managers, I think he's the first manager to go next year. I think he's going to be in a very short leash. I understand he's got a contract, all that stuff. But he's going to be in a very short leash. And if Chelsea starts out well, and if Arsenal starts out well, and Leicester starts out well, the pressure is going to be on Jose Mourinho right out of the gate. And I just think at some point that that David Levy says, we've got to move on and and. You know, they they never should have. Frankly, Danny, they should never have gotten rid of Pochettino. They just shouldn't. Yeah. Um, Lester, uh, quickly, nine points for Lester in nine matches from the break. Uh, they really they really bottled it to miss out on on Champions League after the the lead that they had coming back from the the pandemic break. Um, pretty much a disaster for Lester City. Yeah, but you know what? No James Madison, no Ricardo mm-hmm. Pereira, no Ben Chilwell. I'm gonna give I'm gonna give Brendan Rodgers a pass here. A, 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 a club that size, I don't think there's any way you could overcome those absences. I, I just don't. So I think it was a real good year for Leicester, and you know I believe that if if Madison, Chilwell, and Pereira were healthy, even if two of them were healthy, I think that they would probably have held on to that fourth spot. So yeah, it was a tough uh, resumption of play for them, but I think maybe more than than any other result right since the resumption of play on the part of any team you can look at what happened to Leicester and say that really makes sense you know it makes sense that they would finish where they did given the injuries that they had uh we'll uh Always look to you if you have any other questions. Uh, you can DM us at DanRicho650 at SN Jeff Blair. You can always send in a question for Kick in the Grass anytime that way via Twitter. All right, that, that's it on the Premier League. We've got to move on. MLS is back quickly. All three Canadian teams are out at the round of 16. Um, Vancouver lose on penalties to Sporting Kansas City after finding a way to get through to the knockout stage. 
Of course, Toronto FC losing 3-1 to New York City FC. They were well off the pace in that match. And Montreal lose on a, a terrible goal that they caused just themselves against Orlando City. Any surprise here that uh, all three Canadian squads are out at the round of 16? I don't know if I'd say surprised. I am a little shocked at just how bad TFC were in their final match. You know, of the, the Canadian teams, TFC is the one with probably the, the, the greatest pedigree in terms of, you know, obviously in terms of championship, in terms of big game experience. And you would have had a hard time determining that or recognizing that based on what you saw in, in that final match. I, uh, you know, Greg Vanny was not happy. That was obvious. And I, look, I, I have a real concern about all three Canadian teams right now because they're out of the tournament. We don't know what the future is going to hold. It's hard to imagine, Dan, that the Canadian government is going to let MLS teams travel into Canada to play matches. And I think that uncertainty is going to have a really negative impact on all of the Canadian teams going forward. I, I think the three of them are in a really, really, are in really dicey situations right now coming out of this tournament. I don't think any of them will be happy with what they saw. And I would be willing to bet that of the three, you know, I think TFC is probably the most disappointed. Because I think the Whitecaps, you know, again, much like uh, Leicester in the Prem, the, the Whitecaps problems could probably be laid at the foot of the fact that they just didn't have their whole team there. Yeah. Uh, but TFC, there's no excuse for what we saw from them. None at all. I, yeah, I keep thinking back to when we had Jonathan Osorio on the show uh, about a month ago and, you know, he he emphasized how important the group stage was for them. After that, we'll see what happens. Of course, we want to win, but we'll see what happens after the group stage. Group stage is what mattered for MLS standings. Now, of course, what happens with the return of the season, that's a whole other different ball game. You're going to play like a thousand games against each other. I mean, that just doesn't really make any sense. And I mean, it really calls into question the, le the legitimacy of the season in the first place. But yeah, as, as we're seeing with Major League Baseball right now, it's really, really difficult to imagine until the U.S. gets its bleep in order to see how uh, MLS can return, how NBA can return in in full status uh, in the fall, how the NFL, how how the NHL can return. Like what's happening right now is it, it's still very much up in the air that we can make these things work outside of a bubble format, Jeff. Yeah, I, I think you're dead on. And, and look, if you're the Canadian federal government and you're looking at what is happening right now with Major League Baseball, you know, first of all, you're saying we made the right call and not yeah. giving the Blue Jays permission to play, especially since it was the fact that teams from hotspots, i.e. Florida, coming into the country was cited as the reason. If you see what's happened this weekend with the Phillies and the Marlins and the impact COVID-19 has had. In that situation, you'd have to say hats off to the federal government. That's a good news. The, the bad news, I guess, if you're a sports fan is, if, if, if anything, this has probably emboldened the federal government when it comes to addressing the issues of, do you allow NBA teams in, in the fall? Do you allow NHL teams to cross the border in the fall? It just reinforces what everybody, every sports fan in this country should realize, Danny, that 
It doesn't matter what we do. It's what happens in the United States that is going to determine how, when, and where professional sports start up. And you're right, as long as that country doesn't have its act together, there is going to be a tremendous amount of uncertainty in how professional sports go about their business. Yeah, and how uh, the financials work. Um, I'm sure TFC, with the owners of Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment, can can survive. But and you know the Whitecaps and they've said all the right things. But you do wonder, without any revenues coming in for an entire year, uh, how that uh, could essentially work. Um, final thought: What have you thought of MLS is back now that the Canadian teams are mm. done? I, being honest, Jeff. I mean, the product has not been very good. Um, I think the biggest story that's come out of the tournament is what happened at the beginning and how much of a disaster it was. Now, it's figured itself out um, when it comes to COVID, and, and for the last two weeks they haven't had a positive test once they secured the bubble outside of Nashville and Dallas. But I don't think the product's been there. I think it's it's suffered that you haven't had the MVP like Carlos Vela and Yosef Martinez hasn't been there, and now Atlanta crashed out. I just don't think it's it's garnered the public attention that we thought it might, given that they were the first, I guess, major league back. Yeah, I I kind of disagree. I think the the biggest thing MLS has done is that it is you know it has shown that the bubble concept can work, that players can stay healthy. It is showing the importance and MLS showed the importance very early of identifying issues and dealing with it, getting Dallas out, getting Nashville out quickly, set the stage for the tournament to be a success and the quality of play. You know what? I got to tell you, this is, I, it's hard for me to tell because I've watched so much MLS soccer <laughs> in the past two weeks that I, it, it's almost run together. And yeah. I don't know if what I'm seeing is necessarily what I should be seeing. I, I will say this, and this is going to sound really odd. I miss the fans more in MLS matches than I did in Bundesliga matches or the Prem. And I don't know if that's a reflection of the quality of the play. I don't know if it's a reflection of the, 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 the television quality. I mean, it's so different. It's so obvious you're not playing in a in a you know in a big in a big stadium. But I have missed the fans during the MLS telecasts, and I don't know what that says necessarily about the league. The quality of play it hasn't been as good as I thought it would be. It hasn't been the disaster I thought it would be, considering that they're playing games at nine in the morning. They're playing games in, in, in Florida. The main thing, though, I think, is if they can get this thing done and be able to look back at it and say, we handled COVID-19 properly. Danny, to me, that's that makes it a success. Whatever else comes of it is gravy. And uh, we'll see where they go beyond the tournament. But into the final eight they go without any of the Canadian teams surviving through the round of 16. Uh, it is Dan Riccio and Jeff Blair on a kick in the grass. Coming up, we're going to speak with the Canadian Director of Development. That is Jason DeVos. How youth soccer is going to continue in a pandemic world. That's next on A Kick in the Grass.
kicking the grass, Dan Richo and Jeff Blair with you. How does soccer continue in the midst of a global pandemic? What does it mean for your kids and youth soccer and the development of that as well? Well, let's welcome in our next guest. He is the Director of Development with Canada Soccer, Jason DeVos. Thanks for this, Jason. How are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you guys doing? We're doing well. We're doing well. So um, how's how's life been during the, the pandemic? We're all kind of... Uh, in a unique set of circumstances, but uh, also enjoying the return of football. Yeah, it's it's nice to be able to watch the game again, but it's been peculiar to say the least. It's it's actually I said this to, to someone the other day. This period of time has been the longest period of time since I was fifteen years old where I've been home. <laughs> I, I, there's no traveling going on. So uh, it's been good in, in many respects, time to connect with family, to stay home with your kids and your wife and your dogs and, and be present. But it's also been, been challenging on the work front as we've, we've learned uh, how to become more efficient at using technology, whether it's Microsoft Teams or Zoom or Skype or whichever video conferencing platform you use. Uh, that's that's certainly taken uh, taken a hit. The bandwidth at the the home uh, the home internet plan has has certainly taken a hit uh, over this last four or five months. But uh, I, I find people are are just demonstrating how resilient they are and how able and willing they are to work together to overcome the obstacles we all face as a as a society now with the pandemic going on. You know, Jason, this is a sport that seems to have an awful lot of forward momentum in this country or had an awful lot of forward momentum going into the pandemic. At, at the development level, what needs to be done to ensure that we continue that that progress? I, I think what's really been reinforced, Jeff, through this period of time is how important connection is to kids and what they're missing. We're hearing this over and over and over again, whether it's talking to, to players themselves, to parents, to clubs, to coaches, to referees, uh, administrators, is that kids are missing the connection that the game brings them, the ability to be with their friends and to develop relationships and to care for each other. And I think that's been one of the things that's really reinforced. So that's one aspect of this that I would say has been a positive, is that we've all kind of realized how much we we need each other and that our system, our development system in Canada is underpinned by that relationship building aspect of our sport. So I think when when soccer does start to come back, and I don't like saying back to normal because what is normal now, um, mm -hmm. but when, when organizations start delivering programming again, I think the understanding and the realization that the most important thing is that the kids are there to have fun and to enjoy the game, the sport, and to, to enjoy each other's company. I think that's a really important piece. It's definitely impacted the approach that we've taken with our coach education through this period of time that we've we've really reinforced this concept of holistic learning and holistic environments and looking after the human being first before the athlete uh, and and having an understanding of that as a coach i think is going to be imperative as we move forward building a new system it's um you know, it's just seeing some of the the returns in in different spots, and and whether it's rec leagues or whatever it may be, it's it's really interesting coming up with 
you know, protocols that can work in a time like this? How much do you work with each of the provinces to, to try and find something and, and find that, that ground that, that might be able to, to work for everybody? Yeah, the, the challenge, Dan, has really been that every province and territory is unique and they're different and they have different realities. They've got different health authorities, so they're having to follow uh, their own provincial or territorial health authorities' guidance and recommendation about how they should manage their way through this situation. But what's really uh, impressed me the most over the last four or five months has been the willingness of all parties to work together towards a common good, which is to find a way to get kids safely back on the field to enjoy sport, whether it's soccer or any other sport for that matter. I, I find that the relationship piece of this has has extended from the players up through to the administrators who are, are leading the sport. So that's been a real positive for me and something that I've, I've reinforced with my group of technical directors across the country that it's imperative that we keep this going. You know, I, I had a, you know, we have weekly calls with all the technical directors from the provinces and territories, uh, video calls, and we connect and we, we talk about the realities of what we're dealing with and give them updates. And, and it's been said to me on countless occasions now by, by the guys, can we keep this going? <laughs> you know, we, we, we need to keep talking and keep sharing best practices and, and our ideas and, and make our country that's enormous a little bit smaller by building those relationships. So I, I think that's a really important aspect. And, you know, we try as best we can to support the provinces and territories, the member associations of Canada soccer in executing the programming that they run, whether that is coach or referee education, whether it's player development programming, uh, um, you know, we we build those relationships and, and we're there as a support mechanism for them. You know, Jason, I had a chance to talk to some folks from Hockey Canada about how they were going to approach the return to play in the fall or whenever it is. And, and clearly hockey's got a different set of circumstances than, uh, than soccer. Uh, but one of the things they said is, look, social distancing is still a fact of life for us then their approach is going to be perhaps more on skill development, more on fun for the individual player, you know, especially at a, at a younger age, as opposed to teaching these sort of broader concepts of team once you're on the ice. Will, will we see a similar thing in soccer in this country, at least initially, if there is still the emphasis on social distancing? Uh, I think that's inevitable. I think that what the last four or five months has shown us is that while kids were unable to, to, to train and practice as a team, as a group of people, when the social distancing measures were in, were in place and everyone was essentially in isolation, uh, that didn't mean that those kids couldn't take a ball out in the backyard and kick it against the wall, uh, much to the chagrin, I'm sure, of parents and, and neighbors. <laughs> but the, the idea, and this is something that we try and reinforce throughout our coach education program, the, the idea that you have to be with other players to develop technical ability is just not right. You, you look at the top, top players in the world, they almost all tell stories of just falling in love with having a ball at their feet, kicking it against a curb, a wall, a fence, whatever, um, going out in the, in the, in the, open spaces and, and dribbling, uh, dribbling in the house, you know, nutmegging the chair, putting the, the ball through the legs of the chair, things like that. You know, that concept of more quality time spent with a ball at your feet, 
this has been a real period of reinforcement for that. So I'm hoping that what we'll see when kids do come back and, and soccer does resume its full programming is that appreciation for the importance of individual skill development because it underpins everything that you do within the team concept. So the more technical ability you have, the more um, opportunities for action that you have, the better decision-making process that you have, because you'll have more tools at your disposal. You know, we always sort of talk about the tools that you have in your toolkit as a coach, but that equally applies to a player. So if you're proficient with a ball on both feet and you can pass the ball with multiple surfaces of each foot, you're going to have more tools at your disposal when you get faced with a situation in a game where you have to make a decision. What can I do? So if I can only pass the ball with the inside of my right foot, I'm going to be very limited in my decision-making process. So this period of time has really been, for me, an opportunity for young kids to play and practice on their own or with their siblings uh, and and maybe um, re, re-experience their love of the game in a different context. We oftentimes, uh, we get into situations where our kids become so over-programmed and it, it's almost like a job going to sport, going to soccer, whatever sport it is they're doing, whatever activity it is they're doing. And this has been more of an opportunity, I think, for kids to explore the concept of free play and to fall in love with play again. And hopefully that's going to translate into more awareness when we do resume programming to try and mimic what that free play experience is like. And, you know, the, the, there is... Um some downfalls and things I would imagine that you'd like to, to guard against is, you know, because when, especially when you're a young player, you, you, you like to practice and, and try to get better, but then you want the validation that comes with things coming out in and, and showing itself in a match. Um, so, so how, you know, how can you bridge that gap or, or give that, that boost of positivity that you would get from success in a game format to players as they're not getting that right now it's difficult and we've had many discussions about this at the technical committee level around how can you have a game or a match or a competition when there are requirements in place with respect to social distancing and uh, you know when when the measures were, were first announced that you had to stay sort of two meters away from everyone you couldn't come into close contact with anyone I actually thought it might be a great opportunity to come back and, and reignite my playing career because I never got within two meters of any player anyways when I when I played so you know I, I think um, that aspect aspect of of understanding what the limitations are is a challenge for coaches so there are absolutely opportunities for competitive experiences and competitive outlets for kids though if you're creative and we we had a uh, one of our coach developers who's a very good grassroots coach on our podcast recently and we were talking about you know, what have the kids told you about this period of time? And, you know, one of the things he said was they love games. They love to play games. And, and, and it's reinforced his belief that creating more fun games within a training session, within a, an environment, is really what it's all about for kids. And, and that's what I think our coaches have to look at now is how can I create that concept of play and free play and competition uh, within our training environment. So, you know, I think that aspect of, of this period of time 
uh, has been a beneficial one in a lot of ways because I think we've all, uh, you know, whatever industry we're in, I think we've all had to hit the reset button and 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 stop, you know, maybe doing all of the things that we had on automatic uh, repeat and maybe look at things from a more holistic perspective. What do people really need? What do my, my, my kids really need right now? What do my players really need right now? What do they want from me as a coach? And how can I give that to them in a context that's going to be enjoyable and fun where they're going to want to come back and, and do this again uh, in a couple of days or, or next week? So I think that aspect is a, is a really important one is, is we've got to first make the game, the experience, the training session, an enjoyable one for kids. And, and largely, those are based around games and, and different types of competition. Jason, it's been a terrific year, obviously, for Canadian soccer players overseas. You've got, of course, Alfonso Davies, Jonathan David. Here in MLS, Io Akinola has kind of, has kind of emerged. I, I'm just wondering if the sort of the emergence of really skilled players at top levels, if that seeps down to the development level, to the you know the the age of kids who are 12 and 13 or, or, or around there, does that does that have a tangible impact on on kids? Yeah, I, I think it does, Jeff. I, I think you could even go younger than that, sort of eight, nine, ten years old when kids start to identify with top players. So, you know, you mentioned a few, a few there, Fonzie, Jonathan, David, uh, throw Jesse Fleming into the mix now going to Chelsea. You know, I think young kids, young Canadian kids see those individuals as older versions of themselves. And this concept of having those role models to emulate is hugely important for us as a development focused nation, you know, giving our youngest players, um, you know, heroes to emulate and the success that goes along with that is, is hugely important for the growth of the game. You look at it in other sports. Uh, I mean, maybe dating myself a little bit here by saying this, but I, you know, I looked at Wayne Gretzky as being, you know, a Canadian icon, being a, a sporting icon, someone that I looked up to, uh, to try and emulate, uh, you know, in, in, in my sporting career, and you look at the the impact of Vince Carter on basketball in Canada, you know, him coming to Toronto to play for the Raptors, uh, you know, spurned on a, 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 a you know generation of young Canadian players wanting to succeed in the game. Uh, you know, I think Christine Sinclair is going to have the exact same impact on female players in, in Canada. And we'll see the benefits of that in, in, in five or 10 years time. So having players like Alfonso and Jonathan David and Jesse Fleming and Christine Sinclair uh, as role models is hugely important because now Canadian kids are seeing soccer players succeeding on the world stage who are Canadian who and who are proud of being Canadian. That's another key piece in all of this that I think is hugely important. They are not reluctantly Canadian. They are proudly Canadian. And, and that for me shows Canadian kids that they can reach the highest levels of the sport and be proud of where they come from and, and where their heritage is. And, and that's a huge piece of, of, uh, uh, of driving the development of the game in our country. And there's there's more uh, professional opportunities now with the top league of the 
the Canadian Premier League. I know it's it's very new and it's it's probably hard to to gauge what that means at the at the youth level, but yeah, just the idea that you know that maybe you can forge a career in professional soccer as a Canadian is is more and more uh, maybe realistic, or it's at least uh, a goal to to look towards when you're a, a super young player. Yeah, I mean, I think the more professional playing opportunities that kids have in Canada, the better, because you know, for many years there was a gap there, there was a void in in many respects, and you know, I go back to my own experience as a you know young player, you know, a teenager, 16 to 18, I had the opportunity to play in in the old Canadian Soccer League, the CSL. And I've said many times, if I didn't have that opportunity, my development would have stagnated, I would have hit a plateau or or would have started to decline. But I was lucky, I, I just happened to be born in a time where there was that opportunity for me. I still had to go and grasp that opportunity and take that opportunity when it came, but the opportunity was there for me. And and that's what I see the CPL being for a generation of young Canadian players is an opportunity for them to go and play at a professional level and take the first steps as a professional because this idea that every Canadian player can go from playing in a grassroots club to playing in an MLS academy to playing for Bayern Munich like Alfonso Davies did is not the the norm that's very much the exception but there are going to be opportunities for young Canadian players to develop on their own time and they might not be ready to step into a, a pro club academy like Vancouver Whitecaps Toronto FC Montreal Impact they might need to take a little bit more time to blossom and that's what the CPL offers those kids is an opportunity to blossom on their own time and to fulfill their potential on their own time when it works for them uh, before we let you go, I, uh, it's been uh, it's been 20 years since you scored against uh, Colombia. A little over 20 <laughs> years now. I mean, yeah. I mean, it seems like yesterday, even for me as a young pup back then, watching watching you guys beat Colombia. But how do you how do you look back fondly on that memory? It was. Uh... It was funny, aside from feeling really old uh, and, and, and <laughs> knowing that it was a long time ago, uh, Carlo Corzine and I were on a, on a conference call with CONCACAF the other day and um, just reminiscing about it, it, it was a surreal experience. You, you don't realize it when you're going through it because you're just in the moment and, and all you want to do is is win and compete and uh, and be successful. You don't realize that, that you're in the midst of something very special. And it's not until after the fact when you can reflect back and look at it and, uh, and, and think about it that you realize how, how important that actually was in the, the history of our game. So, um, yeah, aside from feeling very old and uh, <laughs> reminiscing about what, uh, what I used to be able to do that I can no longer do, my lower back doesn't agree with me any much, <laughs> uh, much anymore, uh, it, it brought back a lot of really good memories, some of my best memories of, of wearing a Canadian jersey. And it's, it's nice to look back on that. And, you know, the one thing I would say, uh, and I, I said this to CONCACAF, is I've never been more excited about what the future looks like on the men's side uh, because of the leadership we have in John Herdman and his coaching staff, but what the players are bringing, the pride that they have in playing for Canada, uh, wow. the importance that they they place on 
making the program better and, and inspiring a generation. We saw it with the women's national team in 2015, hosting the World Cup and, and back-to-back bronze medals. Uh, the future's bright right now. It really is. And and uh, if I could do anything, I'd love to rewind the clock and go back to being a young kid, grow up in, in the system now so, uh, so that I could participate in that kind of an experience all over again. Uh, Jason, we really appreciate the time this morning and the, the look back uh, down memory lane. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Uh, stay safe and look after each other. We'll talk to you soon. You too, Jason. Thank you. There is Jason Abbas and reminiscing the 2000 Gold Cup win. I still remember it like yesterday. Jerry Dobson on the call. DeVos scoring off the header. Carlo Carazin scoring the penalty. And Canada beats Colombia. One of the most... Uh, Great underdog stories in, in international soccer history. Still fond memories of that. And now we're wondering if Canada can qualify for the next World Cup, Jeff. Uh, some news today, and, and news is, there's, we've talked about different reports before about World Cup qualifying, but this one comes from Taylor Twelman. He's hearing CONCACAF World Cup qualifying will be eight teams with the top five already qualified and the remaining three having to qualify via a pre-tournament October to June with 14 games. This would mean that Canada is involved in this World Cup qualifying cycle, but it's not going to be an easy road. Canada will be in that um, three-team pre-tournament to try and determine the sixth team of the hex, if you can understand all of that. Yeah, it's remarkable, isn't it, how complicated. I mean, it doesn't matter what happens. Pandemic, normal life, <laughs> CONCACAF rankings and CONCACAF qualification is, you know, you need a math, a math degree to figure it out. It really doesn't matter what's going on, what is going on. Except you, you, really do get, you really do get the feeling, don't you, Dan? At least I do. You really get the feeling that things are kind of conspiring to get Canada into, this, into the World Cup. I don't know what it is. Um, yeah, I, I, I just have that feeling that things are trending in an upward direction. I mean, all Canada needs is a chip in a chair right now. And you got guys like Jonathan David and Alfonso Davies. Uh, let's fire it up because I'll give Canada a chance against, you know, Costa Rica and, and Honduras right now. Um, and certainly El Salvador, which is, I think, the teams mm-hmm. that Canada would be going up against and potentially Panama as well so that's that's going to be an interesting story to follow we'll certainly have more news as the week goes on on that uh all right questions from you it's the final segments of a kick in the grass injury time what we call it we'll get to your questions next on the sportsnet radio network final segment of a kick in the grass along the Sportsnet radio network and on your favorite podcatcher always subscribe Uh, we do appreciate it leave a nice review while you're there as well if you can you can always dm us at dan richo 650 and at sn jeff blair with your questions we'll answer as many as we can in the injury time segment of the show question from jared what are the 20 teams in your ideal premier league jeff Oh my God! My ideal Premier League. Jeez, that Charlton Athletic, Charlton Athletic, and Manchester United for sure. Right, and I'm going down the rest of the league. Look, Liverpool, Man City, Chelsea, Leicester City, Tottenham, Arsenal got to be in there. Everton, Southampton, Newcastle's got to be in there. Yeah, Sunderland for me. Sunderland. You know what? Sunderland, Knotts, Forest. Okay. Yeah. Leeds. 
and West Brom. So Sunderland, Knott's Force, Leeds, and West Brom have to be in there. I think you need Swansea. I think you need Fulham. I know I'm going to alienate people. Uh, <laughs> leaving, leaving Crystal Palace out as a, as a, as a Charlton fan is a, is a no-brainer. I have no problem with that. Aston Villa. Aston Villa, to me, is a Premier League yeah. team. I'm actually really quite pleased that they're in there. And Sheffield United. I think Sheffield United, Sheffield United's got to represent. So how many teams is that? Yeah, I think we're close. I got I got uh, Blackburn and Wolves uh, as as two in mind Wolves, as well. Definitely. Um, and uh, I do have a, an old soft spot for for Middlesbrough. I'll never forget when they uh, when okay. they signed Gaitska Zabala Mendieta, and it didn't work out. It blew up in their face. <laughs> uh, I wouldn't have any problem with any of those teams. Who doesn't belong? Who doesn't belong? Yeah. I don't think Brighton doesn't belong god love him i don't think bournemouth belongs and again just because i am a a charlton fan crystal palace doesn't belong uh all right uh we've got a question from michael in pei listening on the pod who should be uh, the pfa player of the year i think we're both in agreement on this right look yeah jordan henderson was named pfa player of the year there isn't a manager in the prem including his own manager, Jurgen Klopp, who would take Jordan Henderson over Kevin De Bruyne. <laughs> All right, seriously, if, if Jordan Henderson wasn't English and captain of the English team to boot, there's no way he wins it. He's not even the best or most significant player on that team. You know, Trent Alexander, Arnold, Sadio Mane are way ahead of him in terms of importance. So uh, that, that to me is... You know, that's just an example of, of a very parochial, narrow-minded approach on the part of the writers. Yeah, you got you to gotta love it. Just go for the blue-collar guy, the, the real leader yeah. of of, uh, of Liverpool. No disrespect to, to Jordan Henderson. Had a fine season, but yeah. Alexander-Arnold, Mane, and uh, Kevin De Bruyne, 20 assists this year, 13 goals. He was absolutely incredible. Uh, not the reason City fell so far off no. the pace. Uh, final one. Where do you think Jonathan David will land? This one comes from Kyle. Uh, the latest news on this, Leeds United have apparently the highest bid as uh, Lille looked to have the inside track, but um, their bid was rejected as Leeds' bid came in a little bit higher and Ghent wants all of the money. I would love to see him in Leeds. I would love to see him in the Premier League. You know, I know a lot of people are sitting there thinking, well, the Bundesliga would probably be a good place for him because he would be able to continue his development. So maybe Red Bull Leipzig, but uh, you know, at some point, I think you just you take the step forward. Leeds would be great for him. It really would, and it, you know, it'd be great for us selfishly because we'd be able to see him a lot. Yeah, I uh, if, if he ends up at Leeds, uh, my my Leeds United jersey is in the mail. I'll tell you that much. Uh, I'll, I'll be I'll be grabbing a new kit uh, for the first time in years uh, if that were to happen and show that Canadian pride. Uh, it's been a lot of fun. You can always send in your questions for Injury Time. Again, DM us on Twitter at DanRicho650 and at SNJeffBlair. We appreciate you listening as always. And we'll get back into more topics around the footy world next Monday here on A Kick in the Grass.